The April 20th Mindful Parenting Retreat Day is filling up fast. Join me and other parents in Wilmington, Delaware for a day of rest and relaxation, mindfulness and mindful communication practices, and a live podcast too. And my special guest for the live podcast is, drumroll please, Lynetta Willis. You know her from episode 366 and 400. She is a psychologist and sought-after speaker who teaches her Triggered to Transformed program to struggling parents. Join us and bring a friend to this powerful day-long retreat in Wilmington, Delaware on April 20th, 2024. But hurry, space is limited. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat to get your spot now. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat. I, like everybody, I'm sure, just thought, well, we'll, I'm in this relationship. We love each other. We're going to work through our problems. And then at some point, it's going to be smooth sailing. But I kept noticing that that point never, we never got to that point, no matter how much we did. So I just had to come to the conclusion, you know, my anecdotal observation is that it's not ever going to stabilize. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 189. Today, we're talking about conscious relationships with Susan Piver. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Membership. And I'm the author of the upcoming new book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome back, dear listener. I am so glad to have you here today. This is a really exciting episode for me because Susan Piver has so much great information. I was so, I felt so lucky to talk to her because she is such an incredible teacher and human. And she is the New York Times bestselling author. She's a Buddhist teacher, a keynote speaker, and founder of the Open Heart Project. And we talk about her latest book, The Four Noble Truths of Love, Buddhist Wisdom for Modern Relationships. And we're going to talk about why is it so hard to make relationships work? And what she does, Susan, applies this Buddhist wisdom to modern relationships, sharing this really timeless wisdom on how to love. And you're going to find that she really challenges your ideas about relationships and help you go deeper into loving yourself and your partner. So I'm so excited for you to join me at the table as I talk to Susan. And I want you to listen for a few takeaways. One, that attention is the most basic form of love. This is so, so clear. Two, that self-improvement can actually be a gesture of aggression. Hmm, what does this mean? Well, you got to listen to find out. And then finally, that we can switch our intention from I want to be loved to I want to love. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that so much. So I want to let you know that 
The Mindful Parenting membership is closed now, but it's been so exciting to get all this incredible feedback from people. So I hope you'll join us next time we come around. If you haven't, Kateri said to me, I love this course. So the Mindful Parenting course is inside the membership now. I've taken it every time. Hunter has offered it since fall of 2007. I learn something new each time and it has helped me so much to shift to being a more mindful mama, mindful spouse, and mindful family member, and mindful friend. So, so cool. So a lot of the incredible information in the course is in the book. Raising Good Humans is available now for pre-sale. I'm so excited about it. And we are going to be having an event to launch the pre-sale called Raising Good Humans Live. And we are going to have, I think, nine now. We have nine amazing guests who are going to be doing live interviews with me, including Dr. Laura Markham, including Hal Runkle, the screen-free parent, including the authors of How to Get Your Little Kids to Listen, Joanna Farber and Julie King. So it is going to be an awesome, awesome event. I don't have the link for you to join yet, but you can go now to RaisingGoodHumansBook.com. That's RaisingGoodHumansBook.com. There's a link there to pre-order the book, and you'll be right in line to get all our pre-order bonuses as we are offering them. So uh, I'm so excited about this. I've gotten so much incredible feedback. So thank you to, to you if you have been giving feedback or offered to be on my book launch team. It's been, I got so much um, wonderful response from that, that I just was like, I just felt amazing in my heart. So thank you. Thank you to everyone who has responded. And I invite you to go to raisinggoodhumansbook.com and check it out. And, and then we'll, of course, let you know when the, the live event happens. And that will be just at the end of this month of October. So keep an ear out for that. Okay, now I want you to listen carefully and beautifully to the wisdom of Susan Piver in this episode. Let's dive right in. Susan, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. As I told you, I'm so excited about your book, The Four Noble Truths of Love. It just meets so many good places for me, and I ate it all up, and it's beautifully and simply written. I'm just going to fangirl on you for a second. (laughs) I would like be reading it at the pool, and I'd be like, listen, listen to this line, and I would just read it out loud. (laughs) So I love this book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because as you know, with writers, we just write it and hit send and then we don't know what happens. So thank oh you. Oh my gosh. Lovely to yes. hear that. Yes, yes. So, and you had a very successful book many years back, right? The 100 Questions You Should Ask Before You Get Married. It's probably something. It's called The Hard Questions. The Hard Questions. Yeah, exactly. And it was the, these 100 questions. Um, and so what kind of, what cut you started writing about relationships in general? Well, my own relationship, first and foremost, when I wrote the hard questions, I was getting going to get married and it just seemed like a crazy thing to do. And for whatever reason, I've always just wanted to do things as honestly as I can. Not for whatever reason, I'm sure most people feel that way. But when it comes to these big commitments, like, I will love you, we will stay together for the rest of our lives. I'm like, how could I actually say that 
honestly, when I, I don't know if I will love you, and I don't know if we'll stay together for the rest of our lives, I'd rather not start out on the BS foot here. <laughs> what is this? How do you do this? And also, I mean, I'm still married to the same person. I, I, I loved my boyfriend, my now husband, who I still love, usually. I didn't want to hurt him. So I just started thinking about it. And then the hard questions were not never intended to be a book. I just wrote down some questions to ask him because the sort of epiphany for me was just because you love someone does not mean you're going to love your life together. And for whatever reason, I never, no one said that. No one said just because you love someone doesn't mean you're going to be able to make a happy life together. So it's funny. It strikes me as an, an unusually honest way of thinking about it because most of us were, you know, we're brought up under the cultural mythology of finding the person is the thing that's going to make you happy. And you did not buy into that. I didn't uh, because all I had to do was look right, look left. <laughs> and I saw a lot of evidence that that is not accurate, that that is not all there is to it. And, you know, from my own life, but also from, you know, just everywhere you look, it's clearly not true. So I wrote these questions down. And then around the same time, a few years before I got married, well, not more than a few, maybe six or seven years, I had become a Buddhist. I had to formally become a Buddhist. So I've been a Buddhist for about 25 years now. And I kept encountering teachings that I found useful in my relationship that I had never heard before from a more conventional, quote unquote, wisdom. And the teachings themselves weren't particularly about romantic relationships because very few Buddhist teachings are. No, they wouldn't be. <laughs> no, they wouldn't be. Because most of the teachings come from monastics. Yeah. And also you know, we in the West hold romantic love in a particular way that is not, you know, shared by other time periods and, and cultures. So I think The Four Noble Truths of Love is the first book ever written by a Buddhist teacher who is also a wife, mm. which kind of struck me like dumb when I thought about that. Of course, it will not be the last. It will not be the best, but it may be the first. So... There are just teachings on how to love in Buddhism that seem very relevant to my everyday romantic life. Yeah. Yeah. Share. For the listener, the Four Noble Truths are the founding teaching of the Buddha. You know, this is like the epiphany that the Buddha had in his moment when he came out and and was enlightened and was a person without any suffering anymore. And you take the Four Noble Truths and you apply them really beautifully to relationships. So can you share what the Four Noble Truths of relationships are? Yes. Uh, the Four Noble Truths of, of the Buddha, just briefly, because they provide the, the framework for the Four Noble Truths of Love, are just, as you say, the very first teachings given by the Buddha upon his enlightenment. And the first one is... Life is suffering, which sounds horrible. <laughs> I know. I, I, I always I, think of it as life has right? Or that's a good way to that, think about it. That makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard that a, a possible translation for the 
Pali word, I believe it's Pali or Sanskrit, is dukkha. And the translation is unsatisfactory. Mm, yeah. So life is unsatisfactory is the first noble truth, meaning everything changes. Mm-hmm. There's no ground to stand on. And the second noble truth is called the cause of suffering, which in the case of the Buddhist four noble truths is grasping. Grasping causes suffering, which basically means pretending the first noble truth isn't true. Mm. That's the actual cause of suffering. Yeah. The third noble truth is called the cessation of suffering, which basically says now that you know the cause, you know the cure. Just stop doing that. (laughs) Obviously not so easy, but clear. And then the fourth noble truth is called the eightfold path, which are the steps to stop doing that. Right view, right intention, right speech, and so on. So when I was in a very painful part of my own marriage, we just couldn't get along. It wasn't like anything had happened. We just didn't like each other for a long time. It was very strange, but these things happen. I remember thinking, I don't know how to start fixing this. We, we've tried everything. And then uh, my next thought was begin at the beginning. At the beginning are four noble truths. And so that started me thinking about the four noble truths and how they might apply to my relationship. And the first noble truth being relationships never stabilize. They're uncomfortable. No one had told me that either. This is like a bomb dropped on the listener. What? What? Are you kidding? <laughs> the relationships never stabilize. I Thanks know. a lot, Susan. I know. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> well, you know, don't take my word for that. And maybe I'm wrong. It's entirely possible. But look at your own relationship. Look at your own life. What has stabilized? What is not constantly in flux? Please report back to me if you find something. And there certainly are relationships that have long periods of ease. But none of those phases are permanent. Mm -hmm. So I, like everybody i'm sure just thought well, well i'm in this relationship we love each other we're going to work through our problems and then at some point it's going to be smooth sailing but i kept noticing that that point never we never got to that point no matter how much we did so i just had to come to the conclusion you know my anecdotal observation is that it's not ever going to stabilize and it's unpredictable and i don't know what's going to make us feel close and i don't know what's going to tear us apart and i don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So, okay. Truth number one. And then truth number two is the cause of the instability in this case, which to me seems like trying to stabilize it anyway, Mm. trying to make it comfortable. And of course, all our relationships should be, you should work on them and they should make you happy. And I'm not insinuating otherwise. And I also, I always feel it very important to say that I'm not talking about sources of discomfort, like abuse or addiction. Yeah. Those things not included different category. This approach does not apply, but otherwise trying to make them comfortable is actually what makes them uncomfortable to a large degree. So if you just, woke up with your, next to your partner or called your friend or just thought about any relationship that's important to you and um, tried to imagine what would it be like if I just it gave up the idea this is going to make me feel comfortable. Yeah, so it's not, 
it's like the idea, it's like wanting us, wanting it to be perfect or wanting it to be optimal. That's the cause of our suffering around this. You're, I would say wanting it, wanting it to be comfortable is fine. Mm-hmm. Wanting it to be optimal is fine. Wanting it to look like something that it isn't mm. is more problematic. And just rejecting out of hand that this discomfort is part of the gig is mm. setting up a lot of suffering. Mm. And yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, some healthy skepticism in my life has served me well. And if you're like that, if you can spot a too good to be true health hack from about a mile away, you read labels like it's your job. Congratulations. You're a skeptic. And Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. I take Ritual's Essentials for Women 18 Plus every single day, morning and at lunch, and I am feeling great. I love this vitamin. Ritual's Essentials for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. Plus, Ritual Vitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp, and made traceable. They select lower carbon packaging, they prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. Plus, Ritual is a female-founded B Corp, which means they are responsible to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash mindful. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash mindful for 25% off. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So it's like this resistance to the idea that there, that we're going to have discomfort. It's like fighting the the discomfort, not wanting the discomfort, pushing it away or pretending it's not there and all of those things. That's that's the part of the big part of the thing that's causing us a lot of difficulty. Yeah. And then we, at least speaking for myself, tend to add on, and it's your fault. Oh yeah, of course. Or it's my fault. 
Yeah. We, and it, it, it's true. I may be responsible. You may be responsible. That's important to look at those things. I no way suggesting otherwise, but to think that you're, we're ever going to get to a point where this is no longer happening is a cause of more suffering than the actual disconnects you have with an actual person, which are inevitable. Because we start to think, well, this is not working. This is not that more and more with each month and year that goes by, that the relationship is about me. And it is, but only 50%. And it's, it's hard to remember that. And it's hard to let go of the idea that this should make me happy. Mm. It should, it, I hope it does. I want my own relationship to make me happy. But when I hold this should make me happy above, I love you, then I've, got, I've gone upside down. Mm. I've flipped the priorities. This is, is for, for myself, since I work in you know, teach about parenting, like I saw so many parallels of this with the relationship with our children, right? Like expecting the relationship to should make me happy is one of the big causes of difficulty and suffering for for parents. Like this is, this should make me happy. So, so yeah, so this is like. And this person is about me, this child yeah. or this partner is about me. Whatever happens comes out of their mouth or whatever happens between us is a reflection of something about me. And that is only partly true. Mm. You know, we, we're constantly projecting, obviously. I don't, I mean, to, I think it's obvious our ideas onto others. I think I wrote about this in the book. It's like mm -hmm. we have a lens in the middle of our forehead and there's a movie playing in our mind. This is what children should do. This is what love should look like. And everywhere we look, that movie is projecting onto the environment. And anyone who comes into the screen is cast in some role. And that's normal. It's, but, but some ability to work with those projections, to not hold them as the sole truth, I think is the beginning of true love, honestly. Yeah, so we're, we're trying to see reality as they are. I love that you, you talked about that. And I, in one of my underlined pieces that I shared with other people, you said, the truth is you'll be faced over and over again with choosing between your actual partner and who you imagined they could or should be. And I love that. Yeah. Again, unless there's abuse or addiction, I just, yeah. I just don't want anyone who's in that kind of situation to feel like, Oh, some Buddhist lady said I should, you know, yeah. Work with this, no. Yeah. So, so the first noble truth: relationships aren't ever going to be stable. Mm -hmm. The Thank second no, second noble truth that it's this expecting. It's our expectation. It's this expectation that it's going to be stable, and and it's this is going to be <clears throat> my whole fulfillment and all of that. That's what makes things unstable. It, it has a big influence. And then the third noble truth is the cessation of the suffering, which in this case is meeting the discomfort together is love. That's the third noble truth. Or riding the instability together is love. So a great partner, I think, is not necessarily one 
who, when difficulty arises, will sort of face off with you and go, well, I did this. Oh, okay, well, you did that. And uh, try to, I mean, it's, that, that's great to do. And that's a good part. Someone who will talk about it with you. But a great partner, I think, is one who will turn to face the part of the cycle with you, who will see the instability with you, with the sense of we are holding hands, whether literally or figuratively, and we're seeing together. Now we love each other. And now we don't. And now you love me, but I'm not that keen on you. Or now we're both into some kind of confusion. So to, to see where you are together on this ride doesn't mean that the ride is going to smooth out, but it means that you're seated together. You know, I sort of picture it like a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. And you're seated together and you're on this ride and you don't know what's coming around the bend. And that we're in it together doesn't mean, and so therefore we love each other and everybody's fine. And I always think what you do is awesome. Just means as the, as the waves roil and the weather fronts come in and out, we're seeing it together. I think that's a beautiful thing. That's the third noble truth. Seeing the discomfort together is love. Um, my, my husband, my partner is, is um, you know, it's interesting. I saw him, you have some types later in the book, but he is, he is averse to um, people's discomfort and <laughs> averse to discomfort, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I am not, <laughs> I'm okay with facing difficult things. And um, yeah, it, it's interesting to, to kind of go through that roller coaster. I mean, so, so uh, there's so much to dive into here, but then you, and then of course the the fourth noble truth is the, the path, right? The steps to, to love each other more, more deeply. And, but I'm, so this is something that, now I just want to dive into though, something that you said in there that, which is that, um, so relationships are unstable and there are times you say when I love you and you don't love me as much, or I I'm feeling very close to you and you're feeling kind of checked out. It seems like for many people, this would be a, a major crisis, but you and your partner have, you're still together. You have gone through many, many of these sort of waves of separation. For many people, it's just um, they're averse to even having, I guess that's the difficult, that's the instability, right? They're averse to just having that, at all that's the second noble truth yeah thinking it should be comfortable is the cause of suffering yeah yeah and i so, understand that aversion is painful it's so vulnerable it's so so it could be terrifying i'm not saying oh it's no big deal it's a big deal but it's you we you can be brave and vulnerable, which are in some ways the same thing. Yeah, yeah. We've we've I have seen Brene Brown's recent Netflix talk, and of course yeah. listened to her work. But she talks about that very beautifully. I watched it with my kids. Oh, great! Maybe you can watch it with your kids if they're old enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, brave and vulnerability being the same thing. So uh, we're talking about big deep concepts here. Can you tell, talk to us a little bit about 
what this looks like in real life and for example in in your life with your partner but what what does this look like to say okay I give up on the idea that we're going to get to this perfect, stable place. And I'm going to accept that there is this instability. And I'm going to accept that it's okay that there are times where you're not that into me. That seems like that I'm, I can imagine the listener may be having some pushback against that idea. So what does that look like? Well, the first example that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, every couple has big differences in the way they are and the way they see things. And I'm a very solitary person. I never thought I would, would get married. I, I like doing things by myself. I get more dr- pleasure out of doing things alone. Going to eat, going to a movie, taking a walk. That's gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm going to enjoy it more. It's going to be more relaxing for me <laughs> if I do it by myself. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I, that's how I'm wired. My husband's the opposite. He likes to do everything together. He gets more enjoyment out of everything if we do it together. And for a long time, I was like, why are you up in my grill all the time? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you freaking me out? Why are you being so needy? And then I realized, well, yeah, maybe it was needy but I'm needy too and he was actually just different than me he likes to be together we kind of have a traditional gender reversal here Mm -hmm. and so when I started seeing actually a friend of mine told me who's a marriage counselor so great he said in every relationship there seems to always be one person who's pulling for more togetherness Mm. And one person who's pulling for more separateness, more individuation. And he said, both of those things are important for a healthy relationship. A strong sense of togetherness and a strong sense of individuation. So when he said that, I realized, oh, he's just representing, he's holding that tent pole. He's not trying to be an ass. (laughs) (laughs) He's not trying to be intrusive. He's actually holding that tent pole. I can learn something from him. And I'm holding the other tent pole. He can learn something from me. So I'm not saying, oh, that problem solved or anything like that. But over time, I like to go away on retreats. I'm a, I'm a Buddhist teacher. And I, I, I used to apologize for that. But I don't apologize for it anymore. And he feels more supportive toward me. And I have come out of my shell and made a lot of I think, uh, efforts to open myself to togetherness, even though it's uncomfortable for me. And he has made a lot of efforts to open himself to individuation, even though it's uncomfortable for him. So I think the trick, though, was we started to see the value in the other's way. Mm. And that changed things. That enabled us to respect each other rather than think, why are you, don't, you don't see how it relationships the way I do. What's your problem? Mm, yeah. Does wow. that sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It strikes me as it requires a lot of clear thinking. <laughs> strikes me as needing a lot of self-understanding, understanding of 
you know, what is triggering you, understand, you know, understanding of your partner, being it lots and lots of clear thinking, and so, which leads us to what, you know, you, you share as sort of the path to better relationships, which is, is mindfulness. Is my, I mean, mindfulness is a huge part of that. So t- tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, just as you say, it takes a lot of self-awareness and it takes a lot of a willingness to work with discomfort, which the opposite of which is pushing discomfort away, which of course is natural. You're making me feel uncomfortable. Get away. Is there something wrong with you? Or I'm getting away from you. But to stay with the feelings of discomfort, to allow them not to like them, mm-hmm or excuse them or anything, but just to feel them is the gateway to working with them. Otherwise, we're just locked in battle. So mindfulness, quote unquote, I would call it meditation, is not a life hack to making everything okay. Mm. It's not about lowering the stress hormone cortisol or making you a better leader. I don't think the Buddha taught meditation, like this will make you a better leader or a better athlete or, you know, enable you to get a better night's sleep. All of those things are great. And all of those things can be impacted by a meditation practice. But the real, you know, foundation of the practice is not becoming a better athlete. It's opening your heart. Mm. It's not a mistake that Buddhist meditation is so famously associated with compassion And if you stop and think, well, what is sitting there doing nothing, quote unquote, how how can that possibly make you more compassionate? You know, you will find perhaps that that sitting there doing nothing, quote unquote, is a gesture of friendship toward yourself. You're softening toward yourself. You're opening to yourself instead of what we usually do. You need to do this better. You screwed that up. You should try harder and don't do this and do do that. Meditation, we just say, just be yourself. Just be exactly who you are, which is a rare invitation. Don't try to work on yourself. Don't try to stop thinking. Don't try to think happy things. Be an ass. Be beautiful. Be confused. Be boring. Be scintillating. Great. So that you cultivate this ability to be with what is as it shifts and changes which is what always happening. So then when you get up from the cushion and you look in the eyes of someone else, you retain that capacity to be with what is happening, which is always shifting and changing. So the point of meditation is not to be good at meditating. It does not matter if you're the world's best follower of the breath. (laughs) I want my meditation award. (laughs) Exactly. Sorry, you only get bronze. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're good at meditation. What matters is, are you good at being yourself? And we practice being ourselves on the cushion so that we can be ourselves when we enter our lives. And when it comes to relationships, that is of utmost importance. My husband's not a meditator. So I'm not saying you have to be, have a meditation practice in order to be in a relationship. I have to, but there are other people who do it different ways. So, Mm -hmm. but The upshot, I think, is it's not for everyone. Relationships are not for everyone. Hmm. Love affairs are different. I'm not talking about that. But it's not, you got to grow up 
to do it. And I don't mean that in a boring, you know, work a day way. I mean, you have to take a big view. You have to have a big mind. You have to have a strong heart. And those things take cultivation. You're not born with those things unless you're Buddha or something. Yeah. Well, he wasn't born with them either, but uh, yeah. And that clear thinking, like you said that you wrote in the book with the practice of meditation, you begin to treat or not, sorry, this is not with the practice of of meditation, but say pre-meditation, maybe you, you begin to treat your beloved the way you treat your own mind. And the meditation is about understanding the way you are treating your own mind. So tell me about that, treating your beloved the way you treat your own mind. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I learned this from a wonderful woman Buddhist teacher named Pema Khandro Rinpoche. She's great. And we were talking about the path of the bodhisattva or the you know, person who wants to be a benefit in the world. And she was saying part of the bodhisattva path is working with your own mind so to cultivate gentleness and kindness toward yourself. Not because there will be a great psychological benefit from that, although there will, but because the closer we get to other people, especially the, our, our partner, the more diffuse the boundary becomes between us and them. And you can't always tell what, what is me and what is you. You come in in a bad mood, suddenly my mood is different. Or, you know, we have enormous influence on each other. In other words, the boundary between us begins to diffuse. And when it does, the way we talk to ourselves can easily become the way we talk to others because we're actually not quite sure where do I end and you begin. So if the way I talk to myself is gentle and honest and fierce, because I'm not trying to paint a picture of being a pussy, (laughs) (laughs) if it's fierce and honest and kind the likelihood that you will use that same voice to speak to others is vastly increased as and the opposite is also true yeah this is um for for this teaching too i thought very much of parenting and children and this is something that um many particularly moms are very hard on themselves. They put themselves last. They don't treat themselves very well. And they're very unkind. We're very unkind to ourselves in our minds, very harsh and mean. And, and I, you know, often teach that, you know, what is inside is what will come out when you're squeezed. You're like an orange. (laughs) What's inside is what will come out. And, and, and this is, um, this is very much saying the same thing, right? That this, we have to understand what a, what's going on in the contents of our own mind to, to be able to, to relate well with, with others. I could not agree more. And then often we hear that, especially women, and I'm sure moms, as, uh-oh, I'm doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. I better make myself be nice which of course is a gesture of aggression and will never result in desired outcome. So you can't beat yourself up to be nicer. So the first step is always just gentleness, relaxing with yourself, hearing the voice that you don't like, listening to it, making space for it, not trying to manipulate and change yourself and then getting mad at yourself for getting mad at others. Yeah. That just won't really work. So that first step is that 
acceptance, like this is what is, and, and then and then gentleness. But but I yeah, like that acceptance of this is what is. Like oh, listen to the voice in my head. This is terrible. Accepting that is like um, is like. But I I see that that's a win, right? Like until you see that, you can't. There's nothing you could ever do about it. The seeing is the only thing. Accepting is optional. Mm. You don't have to accept it. Mm. But you can see yourself rejecting it. Mm. And then you can see yourself feeling bad about that. And then you can see yourself trying again. It's, a, it's just the seeing that's important, not the work manipulating or changing. So it, it, in the way I was taught, it, it, that's called relaxing. You relax with what is. Accepting it is not a relaxing thing. Mm. So it's minus that step even. It's much, it's simpler. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. And then relaxing with what is, is just, is that, that's like loosening our, our grasp in some way or loosening the habit energy or... It's just seeing Mm -hmm. because you could see, I can't loosen my grasp. That's fine. Just see that. Don't try to loosen it for at first. Mm -hmm. See it. Mm -hmm. There's a Zen teacher named John Tarrant Roshi, who's also a poet who wrote this great thing. It's my entire book in one, two sentences. So I'm, you know, a little upset with him. (laughs) (laughs) But He said it so pithily. He said, attention is the most basic form of love. Yeah. Through it, we bless and are blessed. 
So in meditation, as you know, we work with our attention, our awareness. We place it on a chosen object. In our case, it's the breath. So when you see yourself being angry, you place your attention on that. That is the love. Mm. Just giving it that attention rather than running away from it or stuffing it down. And if you run away from it, just see that. And if you stuff it down, see that. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is stop working on yourself for a minute. Mm. Just be with yourself. Mm. That's the seed syllable of love. The seed syllable of love? Yeah, well, that's in Buddhist, you know, in Tibetan traditions in particular, there's mantra practice. Mm-hmm. And every great deity has a seed syllable, like Om is a seed mm. syllable. It's not a word. It's a, it's, a, it's a little syllable that if you were to drop water on it, it would just, you know, unpack itself into some vast view of reality. So, and I, I'm just trying to say that awareness is the seed syllable of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I see what you mean. So to get from the um, to get from that sort of big, sort of vast view to to something more concrete, you talk about the container principle and five steps to creating a strong container. So I was wondering if you could tell tell us about what is the container principle and and these five steps. Uh, the container principle is the principle that says the space or the conditions under which something happens influence the something mm-hmm. and something influences the space or the conditions. So in other words, if you practice meditation in a beautiful monastery, it feels one way, but if you get on the bus in New York city and practice meditation, it feels another way. You're the same. The practice is the same, but the container has changed. Yeah. So with love, it seems like we're constantly looking at our hearts to do all the heavy lifting. Like, you need to be softer, you need to be stronger, you need to be clearer. Okay, good. But we don't have to put all the full onus on ourselves, on our psychology and our inner life and our so forth. We can create a world that is conducive to love. We can create a container that sort of invites love. And, and I, I, you said several times these are big principles, and they are, but I don't think, I also think they're very down to earth. I, I feel like these are, this is a way of naming something real, and you don't have to believe any of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even matter if you do. It's not helpful. What, what's helpful is doing, doing something, doing it, seeing how it works for you. Anyway, so I was taught that the five ways to create a container uh, that where, from which you can draw love. So in other words, you're not always trying to feed love into the environment. The world is giving you love too, uh, are the following. And they're very simple. And the first one is clean up your space. <laughs> Marie Kondo would like that. <laughs> I know. I love Marie Kondo. I think he's just totally is nailing the the profound and the mundane through her work. And I just love her. And and we all know, you know, if you have a closet that's full of crap and you're walking by, there's this always this sense of like, I'm trying to avoid that. <laughs> you just say, whatever, I'm just gonna get in there, I'm gonna pull everything out and I'm gonna fold it and I'm gonna give away, I'm gonna put some things back. 
And then you walk by it, you're like, oh, that's not, it gives you a certain feeling. Yeah. And that's real. That's real. So clean up your space, you know, in a relationship doesn't just mean keep a neat house or even at all doesn't mean keep a neat house. You can be whatever your comfort level is with your partners, what it is fine. It means tend to the environment and keep it basically orderly or your version of orderly. Cause some people are hoardery and some people are minimalist and they tend to marry each other as far as I can see. <laughs> <laughs> but some sense of our environment is in order is changes the way you feel about yourself and each other. It's weird, but don't take my word for it. I can, I can attest to that. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. So are you the more like, let's have things in order person? Well, I, my family growing up is kind of has an artistic eclectic clutter, mm-hmm. um, which I was a little bit more used to. Um, and my husband kind of would, he would be happy living in like a Zendo or something nice. like, which, um, so we've come together and I, I have absorbed his, uh, his tendencies towards neatness over the years. I, I really appreciate them now. Um, but yeah, we're somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. So are we, I would say. <laughs> but it changes things when you have an environment that you are caring for. It's the caring is the mm-hmm. actually the seed syllable here. It's not perfecting or mastering. It's caring about your environment. Like, is this clean? You know, do we put this here or there? That kind of thing. I'm holding things up. So I know people can't see. <laughs> and the second principle is uh, wear nice clothes, which doesn't mean wear fancy clothes. <laughs> This basically means wear clothes that you like. Yeah. Wear, wear clean clothes. Wear clothes that you feel good on in. And that changes how you feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think any of these things are big revelations. But if you, it feels one way to take something out of your closet that's like, oh, I like this color. I like how it feels. It's clean. Let me put it on. Versus I'm going to pick my sweats up off the floor from yesterday and put them on. It just gives you a different mental state. As I read this in your book, I was thinking about a past guest, um, uh, Jeannie Stith Moeny, who who did the episode Simplify in a Colorful Way. So if you're interested more in this, dear listener, go back to that one. All right. <laughs> that sounds cool. And then the third step is easily misunderstood because there's so much, we have all so much baggage around this particular issue, but it's eat good food. And that does not mean eat healthy food or eat a clean, quote-unquote, diet, which really, really makes me angry and irritated. So, so this food's clean. That means all this other food is dirty. Uh, I think that's some kind of BS. <laughs> doesn't mean stop eating dairy or cut out gluten. It just means eat food of good quality. So that if you, you know, want to eat, if you're a vegan, just get good vegetables, good grains. If you eat meat, get a good cut get something care again it's about caring caring about your space caring about your body and your clothes caring about what you put in your pie hole and that gives a sense of elegance and that sense of elegance is useful in maintaining you know a sense of dignity in your relationship and then the third fourth step is spend time with people who like you <laughs> you know of course we all have people in our lives that we don't like them or they don't like us and what they're related to us or we work with them. We can't just cut them out, but as much as possible, maximize the time you spend with people who like you and minimize otherwise. 
and then spend time in the natural world, uh, remembering that the perspective is bigger than you think. So those are five steps to creating the container principle in your life and in your relationship. I love, I really enjoyed that, that piece of that. Um, And, you know, I, I want to be cognizant of your time, you know, thinking about the, the listener who, you know, I, I really recommend that you should get this book. It's, it's wonderful. There's so much more here. You talk about openness and about bravery and about right speech and fearlessness and all of these things. But for the person who's, who's listening and, you know, I guess maybe one thing I think I would like to maybe leave with is I really like what you said on page 115, where you talk about the idea of switching our intention from, I want to be loved to, I want to love. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'm so happy that you keyed on that. That that seems to be kind of everything. When you go into any situation or relationship, whether it's with your partner or friend or anyone, with the idea, I want to be loved, which is quite natural and beautiful, nothing wrong with it, it can feel disempowering. And like, I'm waiting. Are you going to love me? Are you going to give me love? Do I deserve it? Reasonable, reasonable questions. Um, But when you walk into the same situation, not abandoning that question, because that's an important question, but elevating to the top position, a different question, which is, can I give love? It's hard for women, especially um, because I'm not suggesting you put yourself second or ignore your needs. So I just don't want, I want to be very clear about that. Thank you. You're welcome. But actually, when you go into a situation thinking, can I give love? That's the seat of power. That's the, that changes everything. It makes you feel like, I don't know, I'm not waiting for anything. I'm not wondering if I'm worthy. I, I'm looking for the chances to love. And that's exciting. And that's energizing. And that's a gesture of power. Mm-hmm. hoping to be loved is not. So that that's what I meant by that. Yeah. And that's beautiful because if I say I want to love, you know, I know I can go in my house, you know, in, in 10 minutes and I know I could, there's things I could do to love my husband that would make him feel loved, you know, and that's a really beautiful way of doing it. Um, it's like, putting putting yourself in the the position and i think that somehow we we do that mu- we must do that much more naturally with our children right we just want to love them but with our partner there's it's it goes all the way back right again to those expectations uh, that uh, that trip us up those what we what we're projecting onto them about how they should be and how this should be and how i should feel mm-hmm. um, and I, this idea of going in and loving maybe loving ourselves and loving our partner a little bit more fully. I, you know, I think that's kind of what this, you know, comes down to. It's really, it really is a a beautiful, beautiful book, Susan. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. So I love it. Anyway, thank you. I guess I want to just thank you. If there's, is there anything that we, we didn't discuss that you want to draw to the, draw to the fore that, that you think is important for the listener to hear about? 
I don't think so. I think we touched on some really wonderful points. I appreciate you your careful and considered read of the book. It means a lot. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for this work. I really feel, as a writer, I really appreciate it. Um, there, I appreciate the simplicity of your, your writing. It's not a book that will take you a bazillion years to read. It's, it's, <laughs> but it, you say all the things that are needed to be said in, in each word packs, packs a punch. You know? <laughs> it's powerful. Thank so you. I, I highly recommend and re- recommend it to your reader. And I just, I'm, I'm sure that this work with your writing and with what you're doing in the world is is making great ripple effects so so thank you for for doing all that you do and thank you for coming on the mindful mama podcast my pleasure wow i think susan's wisdom is just amazing it gives me so much to think about and i'm probably going to be listening to this episode again and again maybe you'll be listening with me but that whole switch is so powerful right from I want to be loved to I want to love I want to love because that's what feels the best is loving oh it's amazing amazing stuff so um yeah I would love to hear your feedback on that you know this episode catch me on Instagram or in our private Facebook group and let me know what you're thinking about this episode. And I just want to do a quick reminder that the RaisingGoodHumansBook.com is live and you can pre-order Raising Good Humans now. Oh my God, it's so amazing. I'm so excited. And I've been so overwhelmed by this outpouring of support. It's so exciting and amazing. So if you would like to be part of this, please do go to RaisingGoodHumansBook.com and pre-order and enter your information in and you'll be getting all these pre-order bonuses and things so book bonuses oh my god it's so exciting i don't know it's just oh amazing so thank you and thank you for listening i i hope this episode has maybe challenged your ideas and made you think and will help us all be um, a little more loving this week I know it will be for me. So I'm wishing you a beautiful week. I'm wishing you a week full of loving intention. All right. Thank you so, so much for listening. Namaste. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts.